Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. It's the spring of 1975, and Griselda Blanco is not happy. She's recently learned that millions in profit from her drug empire are missing. And the person she blames for it? Her second husband and business partner, Alberto Bravo. Even though he's the one who allegedly got her into the trafficking game in the first place. It's still a few years before the narco queenpin will turn Miami into a shooting gallery and earn her fearsome and brutal reputation. But she's still not someone to be messed with. Griselda had recently fled a massive drug bust in New York City, slipping out of Queens, New York, before the cops could get her. Now, she's setting up shop in Miami as a fugitive. But before she gets things really moving, she's got to head back to her home country of Colombia and meet with her husband to figure things out. It's not just Griselda that's pissed, though. Her husband is not happy with his wife. He thinks her recent nickname, The Godmother, and the lore surrounding her has gone to her head. There's no happy wife, happy life here, and he wants to set her straight. Which is a shame, because together, they've managed to build a multi-million dollar a month drug trafficking organization that employs already up to 1,500 people. But the tension between them is thick, and Blanco is going to earn herself another, darker nickname by the end of the day. Griselda touches down in her Learjet at the Bogota airport. Only 32 years old, she's already got a private jet and a convoy of black limos filled with enforcers to meet her when she steps off the tarmac. From there, she and her crew arrive at the meeting spot. It's a parking lot outside a nightclub on the outskirts of Bogota. Now, this isn't the heyday of the Colombian cartels, but the country is already devolving into a war zone. As she gets out, she tucks a pistol into her boot. Her husband, Alberto, he's waiting for her, and he has his own crew of enforcers with him. Look, if both you and your partner have your own crew of enforcers, it just it doesn't bode well for a healthy, lasting marriage. Any marriage counselor will tell you that. He immediately confronts her about her ego, and they have it out. Shooters are tense and armed at the ready. In her rage, Griselda pulls out her gun and fires multiple shots at her husband, and he returns fire with an Uzi from his waistband. In the ensuing gunfight, six bodyguards are killed. Griselda is shot in the stomach and survives, but her husband takes a shot to the head and does not. Mind you, she's already rumored to have had her previous husband killed, and her next husband, well, she has him killed as well. That day, Griselda is branded with a new nickname, The Black Widow. This is the Underworld Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Underworld Podcast. 
an audio storytelling experience about organized crime around the world and cautionary tales brought to you by two cautionary tales myself danny gold and my co-host proud maori warrior sean kingston williams who has been busy working on something that people used to read called a magazine article yeah, you're outdoing yourself with that, and I think I need to sack my enforcers and get some couples therapy instead. Uh, it's not really going how I want it to be. But um, yeah, courthouses are going unchecked, corruption is soaring, but there is always somebody willing to send me to a remote island to report on cult leaders. So I'm going to say the media is in good shape, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, anyway, cool. All right. as always, there are bonus episodes for the low, low price of $5 a month that help keep us... Uh, a float that you can get on iTunes and patreon.com slash the underworld podcast. And you can even sign up for it now through Spotify. If you look at the banner on our Spotify page, uh, you know, we also have the YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, uh, Instagram, whatever, <laughs> you know, just like a part of my soul dies every time I have to plug social media, but this it is the life we chose. Like it. It's a life we chose, Sean. <laughs> could be worse. It could be, you know, a streaming about politics or something, I guess. So uh, yeah, yeah. Griselda, not just a bunch of tough but lovable rappers from Buffalo. There's also a Netflix show that's coming out about her this week, which is starring Sof- uh, Sofia Vergara, who I think Sean briefly dated back in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, Hugh yep. Grant had made um, bumbling English guys a really hot thing back then. But uh, this is our attempt to capitalize off that and get some clicks. Netflix? Yeah, yeah. Net- Netflix? Uh, nothing gets Latin models hotter than Pacey Teenage Londoners anyway, and especially when they're wearing finished football shirts or uh, wife beater vests. Uh, and that's exactly what I looked like when I was getting off with Sofia Bagara, which definitely happened. You know, every now and then, like someone leaves a comment that's like, the show's great, but the banter is terrible. And it's like, what? How, how could you not? <laughs> how could you not like this? Like, what is, what, what is going on with you that, that you don't enjoy on. this? But uh, yeah, Netflix did not pay us for this, but they should. And uh, yeah, shout out to Billy Corbin and the Cocaine Cowboys guys, because they, they're a great source for this material. And obviously, if you like our show, you should watch, uh, watch their documentary, because it really, I think, brought her story to the forefront. But before we get into her story, we first have to paint this picture of what Miami was at the time before it started really, you know, snowing over there. And I think we're going to try to refer, you know, we always get like dinged by algorithms and YouTube and all this for... The words that we use like cocaine and fentanyl and, and murder all the time and, and the cartel. So we'll try to, you know, switch out cocaine for snow and other slang. We won't, but, uh, we won't, say, we won't say cocaine and fentanyl and, and cartels. We'll, we'll say yeah, something else. We're going to slow it down uh, or try to. I don't know, man. It's hard. We've talked about Miami before, I think, in a bunch of episodes, whether it was the Santo Traficante stuff, uh, you know, about the corporation in, in, in New York, the Cuban mafia, basically. Or the Club Kings of New York City with, with Chris Paciello. I think that was the late 90s era. But I'm going to run through it really quick just to catch up and back up to speed. You know, Miami, before the drug game really took off there in the 70s, it was a pretty laid back town. It wasn't really that developed and there wasn't a wild party scene uh, like there is now. Yeah, I actually looked at some stats from back in the day because I could imagine that Miami was tiny and its population was 1960. So 1960 was just a quarter of a million. That's behind Honolulu. Omaha, Norfolk, Virginia, like, is that part of DC or something? Toledo, Akron, uh, there's like half a dozen Ohio cities that would never even make the list nowadays. I mean, Ohio must have got absolutely smashed to pieces, but um, yeah, it was tiny. 
No, I think what happened was people realized they were in Ohio after a generation or two and were like, I need to get oh, out. I don't even think the industrial oh, had anything to do with it. But I think we just lost about 200 Patreon <laughs> subscribers there. But. There, was a, uh, there was a lot of elderly people in Miami Beach, obviously, uh, still are at the time, but came to Florida to retire for the nice weather. You know, Del Boca Vista and whatnot. It had some things going on, but it was more of a sleepy vacation beach town, basically. Not that crazy developed. Uh, there's a reason Traficante you know, who ran Florida basically was, was first based out of Tampa Bay, not South Florida. And more importantly for our story is that it was wide open for drug traffickers. There's, you know, 1,200 miles of coastline, much of it remote and un- undeveloped, especially at the time. Numerous bays and rivers, obviously swamplands, ton of islands just off its coast, which historically, it's always been a good spot for smuggling. Going back to the 1700s where pirates used to operate out of the area. And then after that, during the Civil War, there were gunrunners, who would break the Union blockade from the Bahamas. And finally, during Prohibition, obviously, you had the rum runners who would use the same technique. And then, of course, you know, the mafia did have some action down there, especially during Havana's heyday in the 1940s and 1950s. I mean, I I know I'm supposed to read every book about American history, but I had no idea that the Union blockaded the Confederates via the Bahamas. Like, what? that's crazy. I had no idea that happened at all. I think they were just trying to make sure, I don't know if it was by the Bahamas, but they were just trying to make sure no weapons came in from anywhere else into, into Florida, you know, because there's, uh, I don't even know. I don't know my, my Civil War history very well. Um, no? Oh, but damn. I tried to watch I, that Ken Burns documentary, dude, but I'm on, I can't sit through nine hours of that. Like, come on. Yeah. I get it. The yeah, picture, no. the picture, it spins around. <laughs> it's amazing. Revolutionary. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so basically, yeah, going back, it was basically a smuggler's paradise and that's why it was an ideal spot for drug traffickers to set up shop. And after the C- Cuban Revolution, you know, it was his headquarters for the anti-Castro operations, which we discussed a little bit in both the Corporation episode and the Traficante episode and a few others. Um, but yeah, so, the, you know, there was military training going on for paramilitary groups for Cuban refugees a few dozen miles southwest of Miami in the Everglades. Um, and those operations, uh, you know... You had people there who branched out into, into illegality, mafia stuff, just, you know, a real underworld developing. And after those operations really ceased a few years after the Bay of Pigs, a lot of those dudes actually became fishermen. And uh, they did quite well <laughs> until in 1975, Bahamas law made it illegal for them to fish lobster off the coast of the Bahamas. So, you know, you had these du- dudes with boats and military training who needed new careers. And they soon started acting as middlemen in the weed smuggling business, where they would transport weed from the mothership operated by Colombian smugglers to the speedboats to bring weed ashore. The exchange would happen in the waters between Miami and the Bahamas. You know, and the border was pretty much defenseless because there were so many boats in general, and the authorities were just, uh, they were just overwhelmed. The fishermen, you know, they would just chuck the weed overboard if the authorities got too close. Big bales would sometimes wash up on shore, just be randomly floating in the ocean, you know, these bales of weed would be named the square grouper. I think, what's it called now? There's that thing in Central America with cocaine bricks washing up, which I think, do they call that white lobster? No, I think that's a B-52 song. Dude, the B-52. Going back to Ohio. Yeah, they, <laughs> that song rules. But um, no, it's something. It might be called square grouper as well, too. But it was a big thing, right? Uh, the last 10 years, all the cocaine that's washing up on these beaches. And in, in, um, in, I think Central America, maybe Mexico, too. I feel like we've talked about it. It's just slipping my memory. Yeah. You know, it's you, just making me want to tell people to watch uh, Bloodline as well, which is a great show. You know, I tried it. I didn't get super thing. into it. Is it, is it really, is it really good? Oh man, it's incredible. Yeah. It was so, so good. 
one of the best things out what 10 years ago jesus christ it's depressing um yeah there's a there was another one too i think uh that came out i think it's a spanish show about like a community where all these cocaine bricks wash up i forget what it's called i mean it might have came out a year or two ago uh-huh. on netflix but uh, i just been watching the um the new season of uh Sabora or the the offshoot you ever watch that about the uh Oh, no. No, that's Dude, supposed to be so, amazing. Yeah. It's so good. I mean, it's not as good as Gamora, but it's so good. It's Rome, Rome, mafia clans, um, one of which is, uh, I don't know, like, they call them gypsies in the show. We're not, are we not supposed to say that? Traveler? You know, it's travelers are the Irish Depends ones, right? Depends which country you're in. Yeah, in yeah, Italy, I, mean, Italy, I like... think it's, it's uh, anyway, they say it in the show. Um, so I'm going to I'm gonna. <laughs> if go the mafia there. says it, then it's, then it's woke. Yeah, no, they so call them, cool. whatever, man. Uh, anyway. South Florida, maybe the maybe the banter is the problem. Anyway, South uh, South Florida quickly becomes the drug smuggling capital of the U.S. by a clear margin. Um, and when the Colombian drug lords would send their pot, they would also include at that point like a little bit of snow just to you know test the market. Right? This is still the seventies. Like it's not. I guess the early seventies, late sixties, maybe it's not huge yet. It didn't become a big thing until like a decade later. Eventually. Due to the abundance of people smuggling weed, the price, it drops a lot. And some of the smugglers, they shift to smuggling blow where they can make the same amount of money for 1,000 pounds compared to like 40,000 pounds of weed, obviously. And uh, this was when it was starting to get way more popular in the 1970s with the glitterati and the rich people. And it was just becoming super fashionable. Wait, so, so weed and blow, so people don't know what that is. And we can say snow, but we can't say other words. Look, I'm, man, I'm just trying to I can't, figure out the rules of the game. Here. I can't figure out the algorithms. I'm trying to, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to get paid here. The, um, <laughs> I guess our topics don't really lend itself towards not being. <laughs> I was say, we might be on a know, losing streak already. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think there's like a conspiracy against us. I think it's just like advertisers are like, I don't want to be, I don't want my, my, you know, deodorant company showing up next to guys talking about murdering people for cocaine and uh cartel torture which is understandable <laughs> i'm not, you know it is what it is the uh <laughs> the colombian drug lords they're starting to get big and they soon realize they're giving up a lot of the profit by letting the cubans handle some of the smuggling and like and all of the basically distribution when they get to the u.s so their next move is going to be to cut them out and take over and then they're going to try to cut each other out, which is a shame because it really seems like, you know, there's enough money to go around. But, you know, maybe Sean, that type of thinking, that's why I'll never be the kingpin. Oh, you will always be the kingpin in my heart, mate. But it's kind of just like, like come on, guys, like, uh, you know, get along. <laughs> You're making so much. Like, why? Why fight? You know, I just I. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's definitely why you won't. Yeah. 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 Anyway, this is the setting where Griselda's Miami story begins. So Griselda Blanco, a.k.a. the Snow Godmother, a.k.a. the Black Widow, uh, a.k.a. the inspiration for all Buffalo rappers, is born in 1943 in Cartagena, Colombia, in a dirt poor shantytown in the mountains. And when she's three, she moves with her mom to Medellin or uh, Medellin, as Sean likes to say. Um, mm, okay. Actually, your pronunci- pronunciation is usually pretty good. I'm the one who's who's terrible at that. Uh, some of this reporting about her early life it comes from a Maxim article, which is a throwback to a better time when uh, magazines actually were a thing and published cool things like that. Well, I mean, first of all, magazines do still publish cool things, but secondly, yeah, I mean, I really wish I knew 
what Shan Elizabeth thinks about the Iraq war. I mean, that was that was a real high point for journalism, wow. I reckon. Throwback. Shan Elizabeth. <laughs> no, but that was I mean, those days we didn't have to know what every Instagram model thought about every political situation. It was a thing of beauty, you know? You could just <laughs> pose in the back of a Cadillac wearing a handkerchief and that's 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 all we needed in society and things were okay. That's, that's what you did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ruth Griselda, <laughs> as with a lot of narcos and, and mafia figures that have found their way to the forefront of pop culture, there's there's a lot of lore surrounding her. So it's hard to say how accurate some of these early stories are. And some of them obviously contradict each other. Uh, but we will do our best as we always do. Her first serious entry into the criminal world is when she's 11. Her and her little hoodlum friends, they descend from sort of the poor, you know, hillside part of the town into the wealthier flatlands, and they kidnap a 10-year-old boy from a wealthy family. They hold the kid hostage. They try to extort the family. But when the family refuses to play ball, the other kids, they hand her a gun and they dare her to shoot the kid. And allegedly, she does it. She kills the young boy, becoming a murderer before her bat mitzvah age, which is, Sean, 12 for girls, 13 for boys, just so you know. <laughs> Thanks for the info. I mean... You know, I'm a new father. Today I screamed at my son, no, for uh, nearly bringing the TV down on his head. And then he cried and I felt really bad. But what if he kidnaps and murders someone at the age of, what, 12, 13? I mean, what do you do then? Is it naughty step? I don't know. TikTok? No TikTok for a day? Maybe no ice cream after dinner? I, I'm really, it's, it's a tough world out there. You should start a, a parenting podcast along with this one. I'm I sure should. We'll do, we'll do numbers. I should. If I, I mean, if I make it clear that I hit them, I'll probably do really well on TikTok and YouTube. <laughs> this is, uh, so this is the first of, of her many, <laughs> many victims, though usually she, she's the one ordering the hits, not doing them. And in Colombia at this time, from 1947 to around 1960, there's a civil war going on that's mostly fought in the countryside. It's called La Violencia, which Sean, that's Spanish for the violence. Yeah, and... thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, us colonizers say violencia, but you know, whatever. I'm sure. I'm sure this comment is going to tee up some kind of like hideous mass murder where hundreds of thousands of people would have killed, right? Yeah, something like 200,000 people are killed. So there's just uh, death and murder, savagery happening all around her as she's growing up. And, you know, obviously this is, you can guess the effect this has on her and all the other little kind of Colombian traffickers who grew up around this time surrounded by death and violence. People are generally products of their circumstances. So that's what it's going to do to people, what it does to her. Her mother also used to beat her pretty violently, but I mean, it's the 1950s, and I guess that's pretty much a par for the course. Um, from that point on, you know, she's a pickpocket, she's on the street, she's a prostitute in the slums, until the age of 13, where she meets her first husband, uh, Carlos Trujillo. Trujillo is a sometimes customer of Blanco's, and also a criminal who specializes in false immigration papers and helping people immigrate illegally into the States. He's a documents forger. He's a human smuggler. I've seen trafficker too, but again, um, it sounds more like smuggling because these are people who wanted to go and weren't lied to or forced to. So I think smuggler is more accurate. She learns these forgery skills from him and they help her in the future when she's coming and going from Colombia to the States. Yeah, I mean, all this is making me think about these columns about polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. I mean, guys, these days you really, really do have it good. This is a different world. Yeah. They uh, they soon get married. They have three children. And uh, his forgery skills, they help them illegally sneak into the U.S. and move to Queens in 1964. Though some sources do say she was back and forth between New York City and Columbia with her first husband and didn't settle in Queens officially until her second. Either way, 
She soon divorces him in the late 1960s. and In the early 1970s, she has him killed over a business dispute, poisoning him, although another source again says it was a dispute about the children. Like I said, contradictory sources. So if you're a super fan, just, you know, calm down. Soon after dispensing with her first husband, she meets and marries the guy from the cold open, Alberto Bravo, who is in the snow business. He saved up about $26,000 from the business and they decide to, to make it in the Big Apple, which, you know, it's kind of amazing that all you needed back then was $26K and, uh, and a dream. They moved to New York City, they open up shop in Queens, and they start out small by having female drug uh, couriers bring small amounts of the commercial, on commercial planes uh, as mules. They use like hidden pockets in lingerie, which is an ingenious method that, that she came up with. Mm. But they soon graduate, you know, they rise so, so quickly that they're having their own pilots bring in millions of dollars of product a month. And they really benefit from having a direct connection back home in Colombia. And they come to do quite well in the drug game in New York City. The forgery skills that she learns from her first husband, they help her meet a lot of sketchy movers and shakers between Colombia and the U.S. And those connections really help the business get going. Her clients, they soon include A-listers and athletes, presumably because she had like the really good stuff straight off the plane. But with millions of dollars in play and famous clients, they start getting attention in the wrong circles. And then there's a joint NYPD DEA operation dubbed Operation Banshee. They take down a 150-kilo shipment headed for her and indict her and 30 of her crew on federal drug charges. This is in April 1975. At the time, it's actually one of the biggest drug cases in U.S. history, uh, I think, when it comes to, to snow. But she flees back to Colombia before she gets arrested. And then as she's returned to Colombia, she notices millions of dollars are missing. She goes to meet her husband. And that's when we have that nasty confrontation scene in the beginning of the episode. Wait, so is she at this point, was she kind of like a private drug valet to the stars? Was she personally supplying Hollywood or something? Or how were no, I mean, she was in, all these kind of A-listers? She was in New York City, but she was importing and distributing, you know? So she was tied right. in. And I'm sure the celebrities and, and that sort of stuff, you know, when you, you meet the top dog. So I don't think she was like, you know, making house calls that often. But I think she was basically uh -huh. like, uh, you know, uh, occasionally she'd cross paths with them. And they knew that she was like the top dog, basically. Yeah, she's not the kind of person I'd want just like sitting on my couch watching people play FIFA like my old weed dealer. I mean, she sounds like God, a remember those days? pretty crazy person. Ah, uh, yeah, they were good days. Some eh? guys just wanted to hang out and they're like, I don't, <laughs> this is not, no. no does that still you. happen? We need to We need to hear from listeners. Like, does that, I have some do this stuff? friends that do delivery not for weed or for, or for snow. And I snow. think- they are mostly in and out, but I think some people, people themselves occasionally want to hang out. I don't think they do because it makes their, you know, it's a, it's a tough job. You got to be on the move. So I think if they get invited yeah. in, they'll, they'll hang out, but they're trying they tend not to want to hang out. <laughs> when the smoke clears from that, she is now the sole boss of their crew. So she returns to Miami and she really sets up shop. She's no slouch either, right? She's quite innovative in the business. This is from a 1989 South Florida Sun Sentinel article, quote, Griselda Blanco was the first to use multiple sources of supply so that she could always keep the snow pipeline full, says DEA agent Steve Georges. If one source dried up, another opened. She also was the first to pool the shipments and consolidate the loads. This was how the Colombian cartel evolved. By sharing distributors in the United States, they could afford to pay pilots between $100,000 and $250,000 a shipment. Griselda would sell the dope first within her own organization. Then, when her distributors couldn't handle any more, she would sell to her competitors. So yeah, she is 
about that business. Like we mentioned, she was super connected in Medellin. Some sources put her in the cartel, others that she operated independently. You know, the cartel itself wasn't super organized like the Cali cartel was. It was almost more like Sinaloa, where there's this independence and almost like a federation. So it's hard to specify. By this point, she has four sons and her youngest she names, I mean, this is just incredible, Michael Corleone, which like, come on. (laughs) It's just, it's corny, you know, like be better. But she gets into freebasing too, which is, again, another similarity towards Sean. And it's just like a general general sociopath. She has a level of ruthlessness (laughs) that's only really ever matched by some of the most deranged Mexican cartel leaders we have discussed in other episodes. Some law enforcement officials... They think that she was so ruthless because it was a male-dominated field and she thought she had to stand out in her like savage behavior. And there's a there's you know, there's a DEI joke there somewhere, but it's low-hanging fruit and I'm not gonna take it. Yeah, I mean, guys, is it like woke to poison your husband to smash the patriarchy? What's going on here? I think it's I think it's just girl bossing, you know? One of her <laughs> girl bossing. One of her top enforcers slash hitman. Uh, that's what we mean by enforcers, is a guy nicknamed Rivi, who is prominently featured in the documentary that we mentioned earlier. And she talks about, he talks about a hit she set up when he first meets her. And it's a hit of two people in the nightclub. And when Rivi brings up the fact that there's six people sitting at the table and she only wants to hit two of them, so why would the plan be to spray the entire table? She tells him that, you know, this is how she does things. She'll kill all six to get to the two. And that's about when we get to the sort of cocaine cowboys period. Miami's Coke Wars, they kick off on July 11th, 1979. That's generally the accepted date when a bunch of well-armed hitmen working for Griselda shoot up a busy outdoor shopping mall at two in the afternoon. There's, you know, dozens of bullets flying every which way. Two people are killed. Uh, One is a big player in the drug market and the other is his bodyguard. Several others are wounded and a van used by the hitmen is found in the shopping center parking lot that is just loaded with guns and bulletproof vests and ammunition This is according to the local NBC affiliate in South Florida at the time. And they dub the van the war wagon, the cops cops do. And it's marked on the side with, quote, happy time, complete party supply, which, you know, great little, (laughs) great, great detail. At the scene, a police officer coins the phrase cocaine cowboys and this sort of like daylight brazen shootouts uh, with dozens of rounds being sprayed. It sends shockwaves through South Florida. But unfortunately, it's really just the opening round. I mean, this cop, he saw a van with happy time, complete party supply, and his go-to was cocaine cowboys. Like, I don't know, man. I think I need to run a police pump workshop or something. That really sucks. I don't. I think it's pretty good, man. Like, I think it describes the situation very accurately. You know, Wild West and all that. Shootouts. And yeah, that's what happens. They have just endless shootouts by recently arrived Colombians all over the streets of Miami, and it's just utter madness. You have people opening up with machine guns, all the all sorts of places, all times of the day, highways, malls, crowded public places. It just didn't matter. And Griselda is leading the charge and responsible for ordering allegedly hundreds of the murders in South Florida between 1978 and 1982. They, they, they'll kill anyone in sight just to try to get their targets, even if it's kids, random civilians. Solving the cases is also extremely hard because many of the people involved in the trade at that time, they're there illegally. They carried multiple fake identities. So one detective, he makes this point in the documentary and he says, it's really hard to solve a case when you don't even know who the victim is. Then in 1980, we have the Mario Boltlift that occurs where you have 100,000 Cubans who come to Florida after Castro says anyone who wants to leave can. 
and you know you guys know Scarface and all that. Uh, as we always like to say, you got to be Sosa, not Tony. But while a lot of good normal people come, a lot of ruthless criminal psychopaths that Castro releases from prison also come, and they soon find work, you know, as shooters or in the drug game, hitman, and all that. Yeah, that's pretty effective asymmetrical warfare there. Like, I think that's happening in Europe, although that might be a conspiracy theory. So let's uh, let's keep that one on down though. All right, take it easy, Rogan. I don't, I don't even know what that is, but I'll yep. talk to you about it after. <laughs> so murders, which are already skyrocketing, they just go higher and higher. Violent crime, crime soar as well. Florida is just extremely volatile. It gets deadlier. It gets crazier. Dade County, where Miami is located, has 560 murders in 1980 and is branded the murder capital of the U.S. The population is only like 1.5, 1.6 million. It's a pretty high rate in the U.S. for a big city, right? A bunch of regular citizens, they start buying guns to protect themselves, and you have a pretty crazy Wild West scenario happening, so much so that Time Magazine has Florida on the cover with the headline, Paradise Lost, and tourism continues to dry up because its reputation as just a deadly city is total chaos. And I I think this might have been from the 90s, and it might have been when Miami was going through another tough period, I think probably the crack wars, but I remember this car- like newspaper cartoon of a bunch of like troops in like a, a, a transport truck. And it's like uh, like the first column or the first picture is like, all right, guys, keep... And I think it was during the Gulf War, but it's like, all right, keep your heads down. Um, you know, if they fire, fire back, blah, blah, blah. And then you see like a sign to the side in the next panel that says, welcome to Miami. I don't know why that always stuck with me. That's a good, that's a good cartoon. Um, <laughs> I didn't have you down as a political cartoon lover, but... Um, oh, I'm yeah, not. That's, but that's, I thought that one, was, that one was pretty good. So... She uh, she builds her own sort of murder unit of top hitmen that's like 10 to 15, just absolute psychos, whose main job is just kill people and collect debts day in, day out. And another example of how much of a sociopath she is, is when a restaurant owner in South Beach gives her a problem when she's out to dinner. In retaliation, she has her goons come back the next day and just shoot up the entire line of people waiting to get in just to ruin his business. And like, look, I, I hate I hate a stack stuck up Mater D. Or a bouncer as much as the next guy, but it still seems like, you know, a little, a little excessive. <laughs> That's just how lawless Miami was back then, though. You could just get away with stuff like that. Yeah, this is making Vice City seem like an actual documentary. I can't like shout out to the Griselda super fans, by the way. They're they're really picking the right horse there. She sounds great. <laughs> another another example is that in a hit gone wrong, where the target is one of her enforcers turned enemies. The guy's three-year-old child was killed by mistake, and her reaction is, F it, at least we got him. Even the cartel guys back in Colombia at this point, they're starting to think like she's just out of control, and they soon start thinking they want her out of Miami, just not because you know she's screwing everything up for the business with the insane amount of violence. There's so many of these incidents, but one more, three of her enforcers, including Rivi, who we mentioned earlier, they're sent to kill someone who didn't pay their drug debt after taking kilos on consignment. After killing the man and his wife, one of the hitmen goes to get rid of the kids, telling Rivi that Griselda said she would give him extra money if he, if he you know, got rid of the three children as well. Jeez. But uh, he's had enough at this point, and he just is like, just stops the guy. So one of the big reasons she probably had to kill a lot of people is that she went heavy on consignment, which, you know, is generally only for live men and not freshmen. Just giving out kilos with no upfront pay because she thought no one would be stupid enough to rip her off. What with her rep and everything. But, you know... Dope dealers aren't the most disciplined people to do business with, and uh, they're not the most disciplined people in general. So she does end up having to kill 
a lot of people because they just can't pay her back. <laughs> she, she does have to kill a lot of people. I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I'm starting to think this woman isn't the patriarchy smashing hero the culture wars need. But no, I might be getting a bit hasty. No, definitely not. And and it's just it's honestly just a bad way to conduct business. Like these are people who seem like they really enjoy murdering more than making money. Which, uh, yeah, if you can't if you kill these people, you can't collect any <laughs> of the money. It's just simple mathematics, Sean. So yeah, don't kill someone who owes you money. But these Colombian traffickers and, and especially Griselda, they weren't the sharpest in this regard. They were just like, you know, complete savages with snow and, and guns. Rivi said that she liked, she just liked to be at war. And every day she would talk about all the various people they needed to hit. And I hate to keep bringing it up, but the similarities between her and Sean are just like, it's uncanny. I mean, have you ever heard of the concept of projection? <laughs> uh, she was just, she was so out of control that a big distributor who was working with the Colombians at this time period was consistently shocked that she always got a pass for doing some of the crazy stuff that interfered with business. The Colombian traffickers are not exactly sane people, uh, but she just took it to a whole other level. And there's, as I mentioned, sort of like the Sinaloa cartel, they were a loose alliance of various traffickers, like the Ochoa brothers, Pablo Escobar, obviously at the top. So it's hard to say if she was officially in it or not, if that even matters. Her main supplier, though, is a guy named Rafa Salazar, who in the documentary said he was the highest ranking person for a Medellin in the States. Whereas a 1987 LA Times article refers to him just as a high-ranking member of the cartel. Numbers put her organization as making $80 million per month at its peak. But, you know, they're never clear um, on whether or not that's revenue or profit. So I think either way, she's, uh, she's doing good. Do, doing real yeah. good. And the documentary Cowboys gets into specific details about money that we don't always hear about of, you know, what type of payments some people in the operation make. Uh, so the smugglers, they would take it from Colombia and then hand it off to the distributors. And that was their only job. They getting just getting the drugs from Colombia to Florida, they were paid 3000 bucks a kilo. So if you're doing a 400 kilo trip, it's 1.2 million minus expenses. So solid money nice. for a solid effort. One route they had was to land uh, on their own airstrips in the Southwest Florida near Tampa, load up a car, just put shocks on it so the car didn't weigh down, and then tow the car on a tow truck into Miami. Another was to airdrop the packages with beacons into the ocean between the Bahamas and Miami and have the boats come pick it up and drive it right into the harbor. And then tow the boat to a warehouse. But, you know, the glory days, they never last. In 1981, Ronald Reagan, who was Sean's favorite American president ever, and I think even his favorite politician of all time, is elected. Mm. And that's when the heat really starts coming down on these traffickers, especially with all the national media attention South Florida is getting, because it turns into a national issue. Yeah, God bless. I knew the jipper had seen those narcs tumbling off so that libtard Nixon left them off the hook. Is it the Yo, I always read it as the gipper. Is it the jipper? Is it the gipper? Do you know what I was looking I it up? I was like, I don't shit, know. what is his nickname? I always is thought it was the jipper or the gipper? I, dude, I, I always thought it was the gipper, but I, you know, I'm always wrong about oh, pronunciation. Uh, That's I guess so lame. I don't want to find out. <laughs> I'm just going to play it, play it as it is. Oh, so, God, yeah. But either way, you know Big Ron, he was big on the drug war, just say no and all that. The reality, though, is the violence, that was the driving factor in South Florida getting a crackdown. And of course, Griselda is probably the main driver of that. So with a ton of heat of Colombian traffickers in Miami, she smartly leaves and moves to the Communist Republic of California in 1984. Her main problem with that move, though, is that Rafa, who we mentioned just a minute ago, didn't want to send product to California. So, you know, it wasn't like now where you, I guess it was different in terms of like the, the, 
we've talked about how the routes change between the Bahamas to Mexico, Central America, all that. I guess he didn't have that route already established. So it was probably a pain for him to, to do that, probably cost him a lot more. So she, in turn, starts a relationship with uh, Marta Ochoa to get her supply. Marta's either the first cousin of the Ochoa brothers, uh, you know, who were major, major traffickers in Colombia, or one of their sisters or a niece. There's three sources with three different answers. Either way, she's clearly a close family member of the Ochoa family, which is one of, if not the most powerful family in uh, the Medellin cartel at the time. Shortly after starting up this business relationship, though, she's high in her own supply and reputation. She refuses to pay for 1,500 kilos, and she decides she's going to kill Marta with the thinking being that if she's dead, they won't know if she gave her the money or not, which is just real <laughs> high-level thinking there. I don't know. I guess they assume she, they wouldn't know that she killed her, but Marta is kidnapped, mm. murdered, found on the side of the road. It's just, to me, a wild and unexplained move. It's like going after you know one of Chapel's relatives 10 years ago. It's so one thing for another top cartel got to do it, but for a U.S.-based distributor, it's just reckless and stupid. I mean, it's just like, why would you go into business with this woman, given her reputation at this point? I mean, your intelligence just isn't good. Well, I think when not you're that high up, not as high up as her, as high up as, as the Ochoa is, like, you assume no one's stupid enough to pull something like that. But yeah, she clearly, but, you know, clearly was. She is. And Rafa, who up to now is one of her closest associates in the cartel world, he flips on her. And so, not to the government, to the cartel. So does the rest of the cartel, and they put a big price on her head. But before she pays the price with the cartel, uh, paying the price there, I guess, means getting murdered, she's luckily for her arrested in February of 1985. I mean, that's the thing, too. Like, we, we hype these people, people get hyped up as like heroes and whatnot. It's like the Scarface thing, too. And they, they literally have like five or six years tops at the top. And it's like, yeah. well, like that's not the people who get away, like Meyer Lansky is the one you admire, you know, the guys who get away with it. Or what's his name? The one, uh, the Gambino who never spent like a day in prison. Like that's the people you should oh, admire. Yeah. The ones who, who don't end up going down after like five years of being on top. Well, otherwise, what's the point? Cops tell the local <laughs> news. <laughs> so I'm just offended. I'm offended. Is that, is, is that what we get demonetized for? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> cops, <laughs> cops tell the local news that she might've been responsible for up to 200 murders in South Florida. Some other, other sources think it's up to nearly 250, which by all accounts does not exactly sound like an exaggeration. It's hard to pinpoint the exact number, but it is a whole lot. And Rivi, her enforcer, he's also arrested. And then he flips on Griselda to the government, becoming an informant. She's charged with three murders. Uh, he somehow gets caught in a phone sex scandal with the secretary to the prosecutor's office, which I mean, you know, well done, buddy. And the DA gets embarrassed and uh, drops him as a witness. Well, I mean, we're skipping over that. So he is he is speaking to the DA as an informant and he ends up having phone sex with the secretary. That's I mean, that's the most impressive thing that's happened on this episode by a mile. It's called maybe game. maybe the entire show. Game, man. It's you called know? game. It's, it's called, called game. game, is it? Yeah. All right. Yeah. OK. <laughs> they so um, experience. The DA actually ends up offering her a plea deal because they want the case to just go away at that point. She gets a 20-year sentence in Miami for second-degree murder and a 15-year sentence in New York for trafficking, uh, in that case that she had ducked back in the day. Both sentences are supposed to run concurrently, which still kind of seems like, you know, some Euro-style slap on the wrist for all the damage that she did. Some sources actually say she kept running things while behind bars, but if she was, she wasn't running them like she used to. She had made a lot of enemies during her reign of terror back in Colombia, and both of her adult children are eventually gunned down. Well, not 
both two of her adult children are eventually gunned down there during her imprisonment. And during her prison sentence, there's a local Oakland drug dealer named Charles Crosby who writes her a fan letter and she ends up calling him and forming a friendship that eventually turns into a romantic relationship, according to Crosby. His story's covered in, in, in the second part of that documentary, uh, Snow Cowboys 2, but a bunch of his claims just seem like pretty big exaggerations and, and some outright fabrications, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on him since, or any time really, since he's really the only source for these stories. Yeah, that seems like a case of Crosby, Shills, and Cash. Oh, nicely. Nicely done. Uh, nicely, nicely done. Go. <laughs> uh, one claim he makes is that she was Pablo Escobar's mentor and she introduced him to the drug trade, which is a lie. He also claims that with her advice, he greatly expands his drug business himself, which could be true. You know, she knew what she was doing. She's released from jail in, in 2004 on compassionate release. She had these health issues and she's deported back to Colombia, where she, by all accounts, leads like a quiet life. And according to her son, Michael Corleone, becomes a born again Christian but Jesus cannot save her. And in 2012, <laughs> she's gunned down in Colombia by a hitman on a motorcycle, which is a fitting end. Now, I'm going to just jump in to say that it hasn't struck me until now to actually look at a picture of Griselda Blanco because she's supposed to be some femme fatale. And uh, the Google images of her next to Sofia Vicara are not and not the most flattering I've ever seen. Although I, I wouldn't rule out that Griselda was a bit of a looker in her day, but uh, yeah, hmm. those photos she's got a real pit bull look to her—not pit bull, Dale pit bull, but like an actual pit bull, an um, actual pit bull. <laughs> I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you know she's a psychopathic murderer. I think we can be, uh, but I don't know. I don't know what the recollections of I, I didn't I didn't look into it enough to see younger photos of her, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm, this I'm, one has Sofia Vicara and basically Danny DeVito looking next to each other. But yeah, yeah. Essentially, that's kind of what <laughs> it is. So, back to the lands of Eleven and Pitbull. The Miami economy it skyrockets during this boom in the '80s with with the drugs being brought in because you had a bunch of people in the drug trade with seemingly unending cash, and they needed things to do with it. So, when that dirty drug money flows in, you have a bunch of sectors that boom. Uh, people will tell you Miami was literally built on cocaine money. Nightlife scene with the bars, the restaurants, the clubs. Um, you know, even though it got it kind of decreased in the 90s, it didn't fell off. It's pretty popping to this day because people just had a ton of money to party with and people were yipped up all night long, so they partied all night long. Oh, God. Yeah, should we do a Miami Underworld live show or something? <laughs> it sounds awesome. A lot of these clubs were in hotels that also boomed during this time. And uh, one commentator described it as like a prostitute heaven because of the amount of disposable money people in the drug trade had. One hotel would turn over rooms every five hours. And you had luxury goods like Rolex and fancy cars booming. And of course, there was a huge real estate boom because if you're a longtime listener, you know, one of our favorite things to point out is that pretty much any gangster trying to go legit or hide his money gets into real estate. Yeah, I mean, that's one of your sayings. Apparently, I'm into freebasing drugs, sociopathy, and getting maths equations wrong, but um, I'm not butthurt. It's been a really good episode. I really enjoyed it. And and also Ronald Reagan. but And, and Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Don't forget the jipper or yeah. gipper. Another thing is banks obviously opened up like crazy in the 80s for obvious reasons, and so much money flowed into them that needed to be washed. So, yeah, it, uh, city built on cocaine money back then. When the drug lords start getting arrested in the mid-80s with the national task forces and all, a lot of the businesses that supported the drug trade did actually shut down from certain clubs to banks, luxury car dealerships, all that. And the construction industry, you know, it also 
I forgot to mention it boomed then too. And you just had so much building and development. Uh, drug money just really helped propel Miami into what it is today. <laughs> so, but things did get cleaned up, that- I think, briefly. Seven years after the infamous ta- that Time Magazine headline, Paradise Lost, it was on the cover of Newsweek, uh, this time with the title, America's Casablanca. Beautiful. Rounded off. Yeah, I mean, I particularly enjoyed how much I was mentioned in this show. You should do it, um, should do it a bit more next time. Yeah, I don't, I just, it just worked. You know, I just kind of felt like, uh, like throwing some, throwing some asides at you and, uh, you're a good sport about it. But as always, patreon.com slash the underworld podcast, Spotify. Sean has started doing, fuck, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. Sean has started doing these weekly updates, 10, 15 minutes of what's happening in the crime world all over the, all over the world. And, uh, we're going to be putting those up on the Patreon and everywhere else. So do that. Um, and if you have a ton of cocaine money, why not become like one of our top subscribers? You know, do the $100 a month option. Why not? You know, we'll, uh, we'll do it that way. We'll just give it to us. Yeah, or, or give us heroin. Buy or, some or kill someone. I don't know. Like, get us demonetized. Settle, 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 settle. Anyway, until next week. <laughs>